The Supernaturalist by Owen Colfer. Chapter 1. Cosmonaut Hill. Satellite City, Northern Hemisphere, soon. Satellite City, the city of the future, proclaimed the billboards. A metropolis completely controlled by the Meiji 9 satellite hovering overhead like a floating man of war. An entire city custom constructed for the third millennium. Everything the body wanted and nothing the soul needed. 300 square miles of gray steel and automobiles. Satellite City, a super city of 25 million souls, each one with a story more heartbreaking than the last. If it's happy ever ever as you want, stay away from the city of the future. Take Cosmo Hill, for example, a nice enough boy who had never done anything wrong in his short existence. Unfortunately, this was not enough to guarantee him a happy life, because Cosmo Hill did not have a sponsor. And in Satellite City, if you didn't have a sponsor, and they couldn't trace your natural parents through public record DNA files, then you were sent to an orphanage until you reached adulthood. And by that time, you were either dead, or the orphanage had fabricated a criminal record for you so you could be sold to one of the private labor prisons. Fourteen years before we take up the thread of this story, baby Cosmo was discovered, swaddled in an insulated cherry pizza envelope on Cosmonaut Hill in Moscow Town. The state police swabbed him for DNA, searched for a match in the satellite's mainframe, and came up blank. Nothing unusual about that. Orphans turn up every day in the city, so the newly christened Cosmo Hill was dipped in a vaccine vat and sent on a tube to the Calursa Frain Institute for Parentally Challenged Boys, Freitas. Satellite City was not part of any welfare state, so its institutions had to raise funds in any way they could. Clarissa Frayne's specialty was product testing. Whenever a new modified food or untested pharmaceutical product was being developed, the orphanage volunteered its no-sponsor charges as guinea pigs. It made perfect financial sense. The orphans got fed and cleaned, and the Frayne Institute got paid for the privilege. Cosma received his schooling from education software. His teeth were whiter than white, and his hair was lustrous and flake-free, but his insides felt like they were being scoured with a radioactive wire brush. Eventually, Cosmo realized that the orphanage was slowly killing him. It was time to get out. There were only three ways out of Clarissa Frame. Adoption, death, or escape. There was zero chance that he'd actually be adopted. Not at his age. Truculent teenagers were not very popular with the childless middle classes. For years, he had cherished the dream that someone would want him. Now it was time to face the facts. Death was much easier to achieve. All he had to do was keep on doing what he was told, and his body would give up in a matter of years. The average life expectancy of an institutionalized orphan was 15 years. Cosmo was 14. That left him with less than 12 months before statistics said his time was up. 12 months to plan for the final option. There was only one way he would get out of Clarissa Frayne alive escape. At the Clarissa Frayne Institute for Parentally Challenged Boys, every day was basically the same. Toil by day, fitful sleep by night. There were no days off, no juvenile rights. Every day was a work day. The marshals woke up, the, worked the orphans so hard that by 8 p.m. most of the boys were asleep standing up, dreaming up their beds. Cosmo Hill was the exception. He spent every moment of his waking life watching for that one chance that split second when his freedom would beckon to him from outside an unlocked door or an unguarded fence. He must be ready to seize that moment and run with it. It wasn't likely that his chance would come on this particular day, and even if it did, Cosmo didn't think he would have the energy to run anywhere. 
The no sponsors had spent the afternoon testing a new series of antiperspirants. Their legs had been shaved and sectioned with rings of tape. The flesh between the bands was sprayed with five variants of antiperspirant, and then the boys were set on treadmills and told to run. Sensors attached to their legs monitored their sweat glands, determining which spray was the most effective. By the end of the day, Cosmo had run ten miles, and the pores on his legs were inflamed and scalded. He was almost glad to be cuffed to a moving partner and began the long walk back to the dormitory. Marshall Redwood ushered the boys into the dorm. Redwood resembled a waxed gorilla, with the exception of a red cowlick, which he toyed with constantly. Now, boys, said Redwood, unlocking one pair of cuffs at a time. There's a game on tonight that I'm very interested in seeing. As a matter of fact, I bet a few diners on the outcome. So if you know what's good for you. Redwood didn't have to finish his threat. The boys knew that the marshal had a hundred legal ways of making a no-sponsor's life miserable, and a thousand illegal ones. Sleep well, young princes, said the marshal, grinning and keying in his code into the dorm door. Tomorrow, as usual, is a busy day, jam-packed full of fun. The no-sponsors relaxed once Redwood had gone, and the silence of discipline was replaced by the groans and sobs of boys in pain. Cosmo touched his leg gingerly, where a particularly acidic spray had actually burned the skin. Five minutes to lights out,' said Redwood's voice over a network of speakers. "'Climb the ladders, boys.' Three hundred orphans turned immediately to a dozen or so steel ladders and began climbing. Nobody wanted to be stranded on the dorm floor once the ladders were retracted. If the marshals caught a no-sponsor on the ground after lights out, a ten-mile run would seem like a Sunday stroll compared to the punishment they would dish out. Each boy had an assigned space in the dorm, where he ate, slept, and passed whatever leisure time the no-sponsors had. These rooms were actually sections of cardboard utility pipe that had been sawed into six-foot lengths. The pipes were suspended from a network of wires almost 50 feet off the ground. Once the pipes were occupied by orphans, the entire contraption swayed like an ocean liner. Cosmo climbed quickly, ignoring the pain in his leg muscles. His pipe was near the top. If the lights went out before he reached it, he could be stranded on the ladder. Each step brought fresh dab- each step brought fresh stabs of pain to his tendons, but he climbed on, pressing against the boy ahead with his head, feeling the boy behind closing in. After a few minutes of feverish climbing, Cosmo reached his level. A narrow walkway, barely the width of his hand, serviced each pipe. Cosmo slid across carefully, gripping a rail on the underside of the walkway above him. His pipe was four columns across. Cosmo swung inside, landing on the foam rubber mattress. Ten seconds later, the lights went out. A sickly yellow glow lit the interior of each pipe. Dinner. The meal had been thrown in earlier by a marshal and a cherry picker. The meal packs had been tested a few years previously by the no sponsors for use by soldiers in the field. The trays and water bottles were luminous and also edible, which meant the orphans could eat after lights out, saving the management a few diners. The tray was made from a rough, unleavened crisp bread and the water bottle from a semi-rigid gum. The army had discontinued use of the meal packs following several lawsuits by soldiers, claiming that the luminous packs caused internal bleeding. The orphanage bought up the surplus and fed them to the orphans every single day. Cosmo ate slowly, not bothering to wonder what was in the meal. Wondering about it would only add one more worry to his list. He had to believe that he would escape Clarissa Frayne before the meal packs could do him any lasting damage. Cosmo saved the water for last, using most of it to wash down the crisp bread tray. 
Then he turned the gum bottle inside out, laying it across his head like a face cloth. There must be a better life, he thought glumly. Somewhere, at this very moment, people were talking openly. Surely people were laughing. Real laughter, too, not just the spiteful kind that so often echoed around the orphanage halls. Cosmo lay back, feeling the gum's bottle's moisture sweep seeping into his forehead. He didn't want to think tonight. He didn't want to play the parent game, but to s the sleep that he had yearned for was proving elusive. His own parents, who were they? Why had they abandoned him on Cosmonaut Hill? Maybe he was Russian. It was impossible to tell from his features. Brown curly hair, brown eyes, light skin, freckled brown. He could be from anywhere. Why had they abandoned him? Cosmo transferred the gum bottle to a red strip of his leg. Shut up, he told his brain. Not tonight. No living in the past. Look to the future. Someone knocked gently from the pipe above. It was Ziploc Murphy. The network was opening up. Cosmo answered the knock with one of his own, then pulled back his mattress, signaling fence in the pipe below. The no sponsors had developed a system of communication that allowed them to converse without angering the marshals. Clarissa Frayne discouraged actual face-to-face -face communication between the boys on the grounds that friendship might develop, and friendships could lead, to, could lead to unity, maybe even revolt. Cosmo dug his nails into a seam in the cardboard pipe and pulled out two small tubes. Both had been fashioned from mashed gum bottles and crisp bread, and then baked on a windowsill. Cosmo screwed one into a small hole in the lower surface of his pipe and the other into a hole overhead. Ziploc's voice wafted out from above. Hey, Cosmo, how are your legs? Burning, grunted Cosmo. I put my gum bottle on one, but it's not helping. I tried that too, said Fence from below. Antiperspirants, this is nearly as bad as the time they had us testing those creeper slugs. I was throwing up for a week. Comments and suggestions snuck through the pipe holes from all over the pipe construct. The fact that the pipes were all touching, along with the acoustics of the hall, meant that voices traveled amazing distances through the network. Cosmo could hear no sponsors whispering a hundred yards away. What does the chemist say, asked Cosmo, about our legs? The chemist was the orphanage name for a boy three columns across. He loved to watch medicinal programs on TV and was the closest the no sponsors had to a consultant. Word came back in under a minute. The chemist says, spit on your hands and rub it in. The spit has some kind of solve in it. Don't lick your fingers, though, or the antiperspirant will make you sicker than those creeper slugs. The sounds of boys spitting echoed through the hall. The entire lattice of pipes shook with their efforts. Cosmo followed the chemist's advice, then lay back, letting a hundred different conversations wash over him. Sometimes he would join in or at least listen to one of Ziploc's yarns. But tonight, all he could think about was that moment when freedom would beckon to him and being ready when it arrived. Cosmo's chance at freedom came the very next day during a routine transfer. Forty no sponsors, Cosmo among them, had just spent the day at a music company watching proposed TV spots for computer-generated pop groups, followed by a 60-kilobyte questionnaire. Which sim singer did you prefer? Which sim performer was cool? Cool? Even the company's computers were out of touch. Kids rarely said cool anymore. Cosmo barely read the questions before checking a box with his digipen. He preferred music made by real people to pixel-generated pop, but nobody complained. A day watching music videos was infinitely preferable to more chemical tests. Frey and Marshalls loaded the no sponsors into a truck after the session. The vehicle must have been a hundred years old with actual rubber tires instead of plastic treads. Cosmo was paired with Ziploc Murphy as a cuff partner. Ziploc was okay, except that he talked too much. 
That was how he had earned his orphanage name. Once, the Irish boy had talked too much to the wrong person and got the Ziploc from a food baggie super glued over his mouth. It took weeks for the blisters to heal. Not only did Ziploc not learn his lesson, but now he had something else to talk about. They don't call it super glue for nothing, Ziploc said animatedly, as one of the marshals threaded the cuffs through the restraining ring on the seat. Medics use that stuff in war zones to seal up the wounded. They pour it straight into the wounds. Cosmo nodded without much enthusiasm. Ziploc seemed to forget that he had told this story about a million different times, maybe because Cosmo was the only one who even pretended to listen when he talked. They had to use boiling water to get the bag off my face, continued Ziploc. I didn't feel anything, in case you worried. One of the marshals shot my entire head full of anesthetic first. They could have been banging six-inch nails into my skull, and I wouldn't have minded. Cosmo rubbed the flesh beneath the cuff. All the no-sponsors had a ring of red flesh around their wrists, a mark of shame. You ever tried breathing through one through your nose for an entire day? I panicked a few times, I'll admit it. In the cab, the pilot was un uplinking the truck to the navigation section of the satellite. But there had been trouble with the satellite lately. Too many add-ons, and the TV brain said Mishi 9 was simply getting too heavy for its engines to support such a low orbit. There was even talk of some company's aerials snapping off and burning up. What's the delay? shouted Marshal Redwood. The bulky redhead had bad breath today and a worse attitude. Too many beers the night before. His pendulous belly spoke of too many beers almost every night. If I'm late again tonight, Agnes swears she's moving to her sister's. It's a satellite, shouted the pilot. I can't get a line. I'll make a line or my boot is going to make a line to your butt. Ziploc snickered, just loud enough for Redwood to hear. You think I'm joking, Francis, shouted the man, boxing Ziploc on the ear. You think I wouldn't do it? No, sir, you do it, okay? You've got that look in your eyes. It isn't smart to mess with a man who's got that look. Redwood lifted Ziploc's chin until their eyes met. You know something, Francis? That's the first clever thing I've ever heard you say. It isn't smart to mess with me because I do whatever I please. The only reason I don't get rid of a dozen of you freaks every day is the paperwork. I hate paperwork. Ziploc should have left it there, but he couldn't. His big mouth wouldn't let him. I heard that about you, sir. Redwood tugged harder on Ziploc's chin, cranking it up a few more notches. What's that, Francis? What did you hear? Cosmo tugged on the cuff chain. A warning. Redwood was not a man to push over the edge. Even the psycho kids were afraid of Redwood. There were stories about him. No sponsors had gone missing. But Ziploc couldn't stop. The words were spewing out of him like agitated bees from a hive. I heard you don't like the paperwork on account of some of the words have more than three letters. The sentence was followed by a high-pitched giggle, more hysteria than humor. Cosmo realized that Ziploc was headed for the psycho ward if he lived that long. Redwood transferred his fingers to Ziploc's throat, squeezing casually. Morons like you never get it. Being a smart mouth doesn't win you any prizes in this city. It just gets you hurt. Or worse. The satellite saved Ziploc's neck, beaming down trans a transportation plan before Redwood could tighten his fingers another notch. The truck lurched from its spot in the parking bay, rolling into the main onto the main highway, a guiding rod extending from below the chassis, slotting into the corresponding groove on the highway. We're locked in, called the pilot. Ten minutes to the Institute. Redwood released Ziploc's neck. You've got the luck of the Irish, Francis. I'm too happy to inflict pain on you now. But later, when I'm in a foul mood, you can count on it. Ziploc drew a greedy breath. 
He knew from experience that soon his windpipe would shrink to the diameter of a straw, and he would whistle when he spoke. Keep a lid on it, Ziploc, hissed Cosmo, watching the marshal continue down the aisle. Red was, Redwood is crazy. We're not real people to him. Ziploc nodded, rubbing his tender throat. I can't help it, he rasped, tears in his eyes. The junk just comes out of my mouth. This life just drives me crazy. Cosmo knew that feeling well. It visited him most nights as he lay in his pipe, listening to the cries around him. You must feel it too, Cosmo. You think anybody's going to adopt a borderline psycho kid or a moody teenager like yourself? Cosmo looked away. He knew that neither of them fit into the likely adoptee profile, but Ziploc had always managed to pretend like today was the day his new parents would show up. Denying that dream meant that Ziploc was teetering on the brink of a crack-up. Cosmo rested his forehead against the window, watching the city beyond the glass. They were in the projects now, flashing past gray apartment blocks, pig iron buildings, which is why the locals referred to Satellite City as the Big Pig. Not that the material was actually pig iron. It was a super strong steel-based polymer that was supposed to stay cool in the summer and warm in the winter, but managed to do the exact opposite. The truck shuddered violently. Something had rear-ended them. Redwood was thrown to the floor's plastic planks. Hey, what's going on up there, he said. Cosmo raised himself to the cuff's limits, straining to see. The pilot was on his feet, repeatedly punching his code into the uplink unit. The satellite, we've lost our link. No link. That meant that they were out here on an overcrowded highway with no pattern to follow. Minnows in a sea of hammerheads. They were struck again, sideswiped this time. Cosmo glimpsed a delivery minivan careening off the highway. Bumper mangled. Redwood struggled to his feet. Go to manual, you cretin. Use the steering wheel. The pilot paled. Steering wheels were only used in rural zones for or for illegal street racing in the Bushka region. More than likely, he had never wrestled with a steering wheel in his life. The choice was taken away from the unfortunate man when a revolving advertisement drone hit them head-on, crushing the crab like a concertina. The pilot was lost in a haze of glass and wiring. The impact was tremendous, lifting the truck from its groove and flipping it onto its side. Cosmo and Ziploc dangled from their chairs, saved by the restraining cuffs. Redwood and the other marshals were scattered like so many leaves in a storm. Cosmo could not tell how many times the other vehicles collided with the truck. After a time, the impacts blended together like the final notes of a frenetic drum solo. Huge dents appeared in the paneling, accompanied by resonating thunderclaps. Every window smashed, raining crystal rainbows. Cosmo hung on. What else could he do? Beside him, Ziploc's hysterical laughter was almost as piercing as the shards of glass. Oh, man. <laughs> That's it shouted the Irish boy. The truck revolved a half-turn, slewing off the highway in a cascade of sparks. Chunks of asphalt collapsed beneath the onslaught, leaving a 30-meter trench in the vehicle's wake. They eventually came to rest after smashing through the windows of the Dragon's Beard Chinese restaurant. The spicy odors of ginger and soy mingled with the smells of machine, machine oil and blood. Cosmo put one foot on a windowsill, taking the strain off his arms. Ziploc! Francis, are you okay? Yeah, still here. The boy sounded disappointed. Throughout the bus, no sponsors were groaning and yelling for help. Some were injured, a few were worse. The marshals were generally out for the count, either that or staring at whichever limb was pointing the wrong way. Redwood gingerly touched a swelling nose. I think it's broken, he moaned. Agnes is going to love this. Oh well, said Ziploc, dangling above Redwood's frame. Every cloud has a silver lining. 
Redwood froze, crouching on all fours like a pit bull. A fat drop of blood slipped from one nostril, falling through an empty window frame. What did you say? The marshal spoke slowly, making sure every word came out right. Cosmo swung his foot across, catching his cuff partner in the ribs. Shut up, Ziploc. What happens to you happens to me. Okay, okay, I didn't say anything, Marshal. Nothing at all. But it was too late. An invisible line had been crossed. In the midst of all the chaos, Redwood retreated into himself. When he came back out, he was an altogether more dangerous individual. The way I see it, he said, standing slowly to face the dangling boys and running a pocket comb through his precious red locks, is that your cuff ring snapped and you tried to escape. In spite of his quick mouth, Ziploc was a bit slow to catch on. What are you talking about, Mr. Redwood? There's nothing wrong with our cufflink. Look, he tugged the cuff to demonstrate. I ordered you to stop. But you wouldn't listen. Redwood sighed dramatically, his nose whistling slightly. I had no choice but to shrink wrap you. Shrink wrap was security speak for the cellophane virus slug the marshals loaded their gas-powered rods with. Once the slug hit a solid object, the virus was released and coated the target with a restrictive layer of cellophane. The cellophane was porous enough to allow shallow breathing, but had been known to squeeze so tightly that it cracked ribs. Cosmo had been shrink-wrapped once before. He had spent a week in a body cast as a result. Cosmo elbowed Ziploc aside. Marshal Redwood, sir. Francis didn't mean anything. He's just an idiot. I'll teach him, sir. Let me take care of it. You get that nose fixed up. Redwood patted Cosmo's cheek. It's a pity, Hill, because I always liked you. You don't stand up for yourself, but unfortunately, all wars have collateral damage. The marshal reached over, inserting his swipe card into the cuff ring. The boys dropped two meters, crumpling onto a carpet of the carpet of glass. Redwood drew his rod, checking the chamber. I'm a reasonable man, he said. You've got twenty seconds. Cosmo shook the glass from his clothes, dragging Ziploc to his feet. This was it. He's, his chance had come. Live or die. Why don't you give us 30 seconds? Redwood laughed. Now, why would I do that? Cosmo grabbed the marshal's nose, twisting it almost 90 degrees. That's why. Redwood's eyes filled with tears, and he collapsed, writhing in the broken glass. Let's go, said Cosmo, grabbing Ziploc by the elbow. We have 30 seconds. Ziploc stood his ground. I want to spend my half a minute watching Redwood squirm. Cosmo ran towards the rear window, dragging the Irish boy behind him. Use your imagination. I prefer to live. They climbed through the broken window into the restaurant. Diners were hugging the walls in case the truck decided to lurch another few feet. In a few more seconds, the city police would arrive and all avenues of escape would be shut off. The searchlights from TV birds were already poking through the decimated front wall. Ziploc grabbed a couple of duck pancakes from its stunned diner's plates. The no sponsors had heard of freshly prepared food, but never actually tasted any before. Ziploc stuffed one into his own mouth, offering the other to his cuff partner. Cosmo was not stupid enough to refuse food, no matter what the circumstances. Who knew when they would get to eat again, if indeed they ever did? This could be the condemned boy's last meal. He bit into the pancake and the tangy sauce saturated his tongue. For a boy raised on prepackaged developmental food, it was an almost religious experience, but he could not pause to enjoy it. Sirens were already cutting through the engine hiss. Cosmo ran 
toward the rear door of the restaurant, dragging Ziploc behind him. A waiter blocked their path. He wore a striped jumpsuit, and his hair was exceptionally shiny, even by product tester standards. Hey, he said vaguely, not sure if he wanted to get involved. The boys skipped around the man before he could make up his mind. A back door led to a narrow stairway winding out of sight, possibly to freedom, possibly to a single room dead end. There was no time for a conscious decision. Redwood would be coming soon, if he was not already on his way. They took the stairs, squeezed together shoulder to shoulder. We're never going to make it, panted Ziploc, plum sauce dribbling down his chin. I hope he doesn't get us before I finish this pancake. Cosmo increased the pace, cuff digging into his wrist. We will make it. We will. The boys rounded a corner straight into a luxurious studio apartment. A man's face peered out from beneath a large double bed. The earthquake, the man squeaked. Is it over? Not yet, replied Ziploc. The big shock is on the way. Heaven help us all, said the man, retreating back behind the fringe of a chintz bed cover. Ziploc giggled. Let's go before he realizes that his reporters are runaway no-sponsors. The apartment was decorated with ancient Chinese artifacts. Suits of battle armor stood in each corner, and jade dragons lined the shelves. The main room had several windows, but most were decorative plasma. Only one led to Satellite City. Cosmo popped the clip, pulling open the triple-glazed react-to-light pane. Ziploc stuck his face into the outside air. Excellent, he said. A fire escape. A way down. Cosmo stepped through onto a middle grill. Down is what Redwood would, would expect. We go up. Ziploc held back. Up? Cosmo pulled him through. Don't tell me the boy who irritates marshals for fun is afraid of heights. No, replied Ziploc, pallor washing his gaunt face. I'm afraid of the ground. Marshal Redwood did not pass out. He wasn't that lucky. Instead, a block of pain battered him like a malignant glacier. He combated the agony using a trick from his army days. Locate the white center of the pain and concentrate on it. Redwood found to his surprise that the root of his pain was not in his nose, but in the center of his forehead. He focused on the spot, sucking the pain in and con containing it. He trapped it there long enough to pop a pain tab from its plastic bubble in his medikit. Barely a minute later, the pain receded to a dull throb behind one ear, under control, for now. Back to business. Those no sponsors had thrown his authority back in his face. Those two were going to be shrink getting shrink-wrapped for sure. Still, best to pretend to follow the rules. He unclipped a communicator from his belt. Redwood to base. That you, Redwood? We thought you were dead. Redwood scowled. Fred Alisganti was on duty back at base. That man made a goldfish look smart. Yeah, well, I'm alive, but I got a couple of runners. I'm leaving now in pursuit. I don't know, Marshal Redward. You're supposed to stay with the vehicle. Regulations. They're sending a truck for you. Five minutes, tops. Redwood lifted a rod from one of his unconscious colleagues. Negative. The no sponsors are armed and have already fired cellophane slugs. Can you imagine the lawsuit Clarissa Refrain would be looking at if they wrap a civilian? Fred did not answer for a few moments. Doubtless, he was checking protocol on the security manual. Okay, Redwood. Maybe you can knock him around a bit first. And that way, we get to test some of the new pharmaceuticals. That was typical of the Institute. Always looking for the upside. A new batch of synthetic, synthetic skin had just come in, but they needed people with wounds to test it. Redwood hid a throw-down rod inside his jacket. I'll see what I can do. In the restaurant, patrons were escaping through the side door. 
not that they were guilty of anything, but nobody wanted to spend their evening answering questions from private security, state police, insurance agents, and lawyers. When Redwood clambered through the remains of the escape hatch, people instinctively stepped out of his way. The marshal's fierce eyes and pulped mass of face made it seem not wise to obstruct him. For a man in pursuit of fugitives, Redwood did not seem overly eager or even anxious. And why would he be? Though the no sponsors were not aware of it, escape was impossible. Every move they made was being tracked, and these were not the kind of trackers that could be discarded. They were in every pore. Whenever the no sponsors took a shower, their skin was coated with microbeads of an electronegative halogen solution, which would show up on the Clarissa Frayne scanner. Even if the orphans stopped taking showers, the solution would take months to wear off. Redwood keyed the talk button on his communicator. Fred, send the Hill C and Murphy F tracker patterns to my handset. Fred cleared his throat to, into the mic. Uh, the tracker patterns? Redwood ground his teeth. Damn it, Fred. Is Bruce there? Put Bruce on. Bruce got called for a little situation in D-Block. I'm all on my lonesome here. Okay, Fred. Listen to me carefully. Punch up Cosmo and Ziploc on the tracker file. Then email their patterns to my handset. Use the email icon. My number is right there under personnel. All you have to do is drag and drop the folders. Got it? Fred wiped his sweating brow. Over the radio, it sounded like sandpaper on soft woods. I got it. Drag the folders. No problem. Here it comes. It had better be coming, or I'm coming for you. It was Redwood's habit to turn statements into threats. In Sim coffee shops, he was known to say, it had better be hot, or I'll make it hot for you. Redwood thought this was extremely clever. Five seconds later, two moving icons appeared on the small screen on Redwood's communicator, placing the fugitives on a fire escape outside the building. Going up to the idiots. What were they going to do? Fly off the roof? Redwood grinned, the action bringing tears of pain to his eyes. Fly off the roof? That wasn't such a bad idea. In Satellite City, raindrops could take a person's eye out if you were foolish enough to look up during a storm. Reaction with certain toxic fumes caused the water molecules to bond more efficiently until they fell to earth like missiles. Traditional umbrellas were no longer sufficient, and new rigid plastic models were becoming popular in the big pig. Ziploc and Cosmo did not have the luxury of umbrellas to help them through the current downpour, and had to make do with keeping their eyes down and shoulders hunched. Raindrops battered their necks and backs, but the boys were so cold that they barely felt any pain. Ziploc was thrown against the fire escape bars by a flurry of drops. I can see the city. I always wanted to see the city without shackles on my wrist. Maybe we can do that soon, Cosmo. Just walk around without shackles. Cosmo saved his energy for flight. The roof was still one floor up. After that, they were banking on good fortune. Maybe they could make the jump to the next building. Maybe not. They hugged the wall, avoiding the brunt of the rainstorm. Below, in the streets, car alarms were activated by the mutant drops. Security firms never responded to car callouts during a rainstorm. They were always set off by weather conditions or very foolish carjackers. Cosmo rounded the final corner onto the roof, a flat expanse of slick, tar-coated felt punctuated by a stairwell box, like a submarine's conning tower. The box's corrugated roof was buckling under the rain's onslaught, and suddenly the downpour stopped, as though God had turned off the water, another characteristic of Satellite City's freakish weather. Someone up there likes us, said Ziploc. It's a bit late for that, commented Cosmo, shaking the water from his hair. Let's go.
They padded across the saturated felt. With every step, the roof sagged alarmingly, and in several spots the support girders were visible through sparse strands of felt. Then the connecting building was one story down. As a landing pad, it left a lot to be desired. The rooftop was littered with the rem remains of a squatter camp. Breeze blocks lay like discarded dominoes, and sparks spluttered from the cracked casing of a rooftop, rooftop generator. Cosmo hooked his toes over the edge, trying not to think about the drop. Do you think we can make it? he asked. Ziploc's reply was to rear back from the brink. Cosmo was undeterred. I think we can make it. I really think we can. I don't think you will. Either of you, said someone in nasal tones. Anybody who spoke like that either had a bad cold or a broken nose. Cosmo and Ziploc turned around slowly. Marshall Redwood stood in, in the rooftop doorway, lips stretched into a huge grin. Tears were streaming down his cheeks. I took the elevator, he explained. You two are dumber than recycled sewage. What did you think? Going up would fool me? Cosmo didn't answer. It really wasn't, wasn't really a question. Water was dripping from his hair, down between his shoulder blades. Perhaps that was what made him shiver. We surrender, Marshal. Don't we, Ziploc? Ziploc was too petrified to answer. Too late for surrender. You're armed fugitives now. I can't take any chances. You gotta be wrapped. Redwood took the throwdown from his vest, dropping it at their feet. Cosmo's breath came in short gasps. Please, Marshal, we're on a rooftop. It could be hours before they get us in a vat. The vat contained an acidic compound used to dissolve the cellophane. I know, said Redwood, the craziness in his eyes shining through the tears. Redwood marched over to Ziploc, gathering a bunch of his lapo in his fist. He leaned the terrified boy over the lip of the roof. This is the last lesson, Francis. You better learn from this one. Ziploc began to giggle, hysterical laughter that had nothing to do with happiness. Redwood placed the rod against his forehead. I'd advise you to shut your mouth, Francis. You don't want any plastic going in there. Do your worst, Redwood, shouted Ziploc, eyes wide. I can't get any more scared than I am right now. Redwood laughed, causing a fresh spurt from his tear ducts. Oh, I don't know about... Then Ziploc's jumpsuit ripped. One too many cleanings had left it with the strength of red, wet cardboard, and Redwood was left holding a rose-shaped bunch of material, and Ziploc was left at an angle he couldn't correct. His final word to Cosmo was, Sorry. He said, and he slipped over to the edge. It wasn't a long way down. School children have jumped from higher trees and escaped without so much as a twisted ankle. But when Ziploc went over, he went over backwards, dragging Cosmo with him. There was no time for prayer or screams. Cosmo's life did not flash before his eyes. One moment he was pleading with Marshall Redwood, the next land and sky flipped and he was face down in the next building's rooftop generator. Alive though, definitely. In some considerable pain, but alive. Pain was proof of that. Cosmo's vision was filled with multicolored wires, sparks, ancient transformers, and rust chips that fluttered around his head like bloody snowflakes. His arm jiggled. Ziploc was moving. No, Cosmo whispered. No air for shouting. Don't move. Ziploc moved again. Maybe he had heard, maybe he hadn't. Cosmo would never know. His partner's movement dragged the metal cuff across two exposed wires, diverting 10,000 volts from the supply wires and into the two boys. The charge catapulted the boys from the generator, spinning them across the roof puddles like stones across a pond. They came to rest against a guardrail, on their backs, looking up. 
Redwood peered down from above. Both boys' patterns had disappeared from his tracker. The generator could have shorted out the electronegative halogen microbeams in their pores, but most likely they were dead. It was obvious what could have happened. The fugitives had been knocked from the roof by the rainstorm. It was a simple lie, and believable, so long as he did not stick around here to get photographed by some snoop satellite. The marshal hurried to the stairwell. Better let someone else find the bodies. He would be in the restaurant helping the injured when it happened. Cosmo did not have the energy to speak. His entire body felt bleached by the electric shock. All he could hear was his own heartbeat slowing with every breath. Missing beats. Shutting down. His eyes played tricks on him. Hallucinations, he supposed. Strange, inhuman creatures appeared on the walls of surrounding buildings, crawling at amazing speeds with no regard for gravity. They hurtled over the lip of the building, veering sharply downward towards the crash site. Two split from the group, swerving towards the injured boys. One settled on Cosmo's chest, weightless, watching him with large, expressionless eyes. The creature was the size of an infant, with smooth, blue, translucent skin, four slender limbs, and an oval head. Its features were delicate and impassive hairless and smooth. Sparks rolled in its veins instead of blood. The second creature flickered in the corner of his eye, settling beside Ziploc, cradling his smoking head. Cosmo felt his heart skip another beat. Maybe two. What were these creatures? Fear sent a shiver through his chest, like another blast from the generator. His spine arched in shock and panic, bucking the creature off his chest, but it held on effortlessly. It reached out a blue hand. Four fingers, thought Cosmo. Only four. The hand settled on his heart and sucked. Somehow the hand was pulling the pain from his body. The agony dipped, faded, and was gone. The more the creature sucked, the brighter its light became until its blue glow morphed into sunset gold. Cosmo used the last of his energy to look down. Something was flowing from him in a starry stream. He knew what it was. Life. Cosmo felt his days and months slip from his body like water through a fractured dam. The creature was killing him. The panic rose in him again. He wanted to struggle. He tried to grab the creature, but his muscles had turned to jelly. Then things happened very quickly. Three kids appeared on the rooftop. Two boys and a girl. They weren't medics of any kind. That much was clear from their clothing and their ages. But at least they were human. Two here, said the first. A tall, older boy, clothed from head to foot in black. I'll take them. You check below. His comrades scurried to the roof's edge, peering down to the street. They're looking, but they're not landing, said a second newcomer. A Latina girl, maybe 15, with gang tattoos over one eyebrow. Too much water. The fire brigade are hosing the truck. The first youth dragged what looked like a torch from his shoulder holster, twisting a ring around its base. White sparks flickered at the business end. He fired the device on the move. Two blasts of pure electricity erupted from the barrel of his strange weapon. The effect was spectacular. The white bolts sank into the ghostly creature's skin, branching into a million tendrils. Each one traced a vein, fusing with the sparks already there. The creatures shuddered and convulsed, their skin swelling to a bursting point, and passed it. They both exploded into a dozen perfect spheres of light, which drifted away on the breeze. Whoa, croaked Cosmo, wasting his last gasp of air. A live one, said the group's third member, who seemed to be about six years old, blonde with a child's disproportionately large head. He knelt beside Cosmo, checking his heartbeat and shining a light into one pupil. No dilation in an irregular heartbeat. He needs a defilibrator, Stefan. We need to kickstart his heart. Hallucination. It must be a hallucination. The tall youth, Stefan, loomed over in Cosmo's fading vision. What about the other one, Ditto? Ditto placed a hand on Ziploc's chest. 
For a second, Cosmo thought he saw life stream playing around his fingers. Then, the other one? No, he's gone. Not a peep. Stefan adjusted his weapon. Well, I don't have a defilibrator. Ditto stepped away hurriedly. You sure? This roof is wet. Stefan pointed the, the weapon at Cosmo's chest. No, he said, and fired. Cosmo felt the charge going in like a sledgehammer through his ribs. Surely it must have broken every bone in his chest. Surely this was the last straw. His body could take no more. He felt his hair straightening, tugging at the pores in his scalp. His jumpsuit caught fire, dropping from his skin in burning clumps. Ditto doused him with the contents of a nearby fire bucket, but Cosmo did not feel the cold. Something else was happening. Badum, his heart, beating again and again. Badum, badum. We got him, crowed Ditto. This guy's got the will to live of a hungry dog, but he needs serious medical attention. His head is cracked open like an egg. Stefan sighed, relieved that his gamble had paid off. He holstered the lightning rod. Okay, the lawyers will find him. I don't want them to find us, too. Cosmo drew his first breath in over a minute. Please. They couldn't just leave him here. Not after all this. Take me. Stefan didn't look back. Sorry, we've got enough trouble looking after ourselves. Cosmo knew that Redwood would never allow him to reach the Institute alive. Please. The girl leaned over him. You know, Stefan, maybe he could make the Sim coffee or something. Stefan sighed, holding the door open for his team. Mona, we go through this every night. Mona sighed. Tough break, kid. Cosmo's heart beat steadily now, sending blood pulsing to his brain. If you leave me, he rasped, they'll come back. And suddenly Stefan was half interested. Who'll come back, he said, striding across the roof. Cosmo struggled to stay conscious. The creatures. Ditto clapped his hands. Did you hear that? The creatures, Stefan. He's a spotter. Rap me if he isn't. Stefan shrugged. It could be nothing. Maybe one of us mentioned the creatures. Maybe it was a hallucination. Cosmo coughed up some smoke. The blue creatures, with electricity in their veins. They were sucking the life out of me. Pretty accurate hallucination, noted Mona. Stefan nodded at Ditto. Okay, we'll take it. He's a spotter. The Spanish girl examined the cuffs. Okay, Stefan, give me a minute. A second, Mona. We can spare a second. Mona clip picked the, a clip from her hair, jiggling it expertly in the cuff's lock. In a second, more than in, in slightly more than a second, Ziploc's wrist was free. Not that it was any good to him now. Stefan hoisted Cosmo onto his shoulder. Let's go. We can open the other cuff at the warehouse. Cosmo hung there like a side of meat. He could have spoken then, asked a few more questions, but he didn't, afraid that if he pestered this tall young man, they would decide not to take him wherever it was they were going, and anywhere was better than the Clarissa Frayne Institute for the Parentally Challenged. Cosmo's brain decided that there was no room for this new feeling of relief, and shut him down for repairs. <laughs>